HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome back to Charleston. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. We're doing a special uh, collaborative episode with the Williams-Sonoma Chefs Collective. Uh, We're live in our Heritage Radio Network uh, TP here in Charleston, and I've got some wonderful guests joining me on the couches. So I've got Gavin Kaysen, Katie Button, and Julia Momose, and we are all going to be having sort of a collaborative discussion here all together, but briefly, I'm just going to introduce everybody and uh, just give a quick hello after I read your your little bio here. So uh, sitting right next to me is Chef Gavin Kaysen. He was named a Food & Wine Best New Chef in 2007. His work at Cafe Balud earned a Michelin star for the restaurant, and he is the recipient of the James Beard Rising Star Chef Award. He repre- represented the United States in the 2007 Boku Store and helped found the Boku Store USA Foundation. He also served as head coach for them in 2013 and 2015. He pretty recently returned to Minnesota to open Spoon and Stable in his hometown. Sitting next to him is Chef Katie Button. She runs two restaurant concepts in Asheville, uh, Kurate Tapas Bar and Night Bell, and uh, she's trying to create an eco-friendly restaurant environment at both her restaurants, and we're also going to talk about the living wage certified uh, environment of her restaurant. She works with local companies and organizations to recycle, compost, and reduce food waste and the environmental impact of her restaurants. And then sitting next to her is Julia. Julia was born and raised in Japan. She moved to the U.S. to attend Cornell University and later became the first woman to bartend at the office in Chicago. Until two, until 2017, she was the head bartender for Green River Restaurant and Bar and managed multiple menus over the three locations as well as all staff training. She joined the team at Oriole and is working on opening another bar with them, which will be named Kumiko. Thank you so much, all of you, for coming and joining us here at uh, the Heritage Radio Network teepee. Thank you. So I, I want to start off, Gavin, I, I, I want to just ask you first about leaving New York City. You had a tremendous amount of success in New York City. You worked at some very high-profile places. You made the decision to move back to Minnesota. What were the reasons that uh, moved you to move, and, uh, and how has it been going at Spoon & Stable since you've moved back to Minnesota? Well, I think what's funny is, for me, I didn't necessarily feel as though there was a tremendous amount of success in New York City because I was too 
buried in what was going on every day in the city and in the restaurants. Uh, it was it was a three year decision to move back home to Minnesota. It wasn't like I woke up one day and hated the way that the subway was and decided to leave the city. Um, I really made the conscious decision. My my wife and I, we have two boys that are six and eight. They were three and five at the time. uh, And we really wanted to think about where do we want to raise our kids? And so it became a, a pretty selfish family decision and less of a business decision. I've always thought that wherever you cook, if you deliver beautiful food and great service and a lovely environment, people are going to find you and they're going to seek you out. Uh, So that's why we left. We left because we wanted to seek that out. And so it's been a lot of fun to be back home. The restaurants, thankfully, have been doing very well since we opened up. Uh, Spoon is three and a half years old. And then Belcour, our newest one, is uh, embarking on its first birthday, which will be in two weeks. And it's been great. I mean, the best part is, is like my, you know, my, my eight-year-old called my parents at 7 o'clock this morning because he wanted to go over and pick up baseball cards at their house. It's like that's I want them to have those memories as kids. So that was really important. What are some of the changes, if any, that, that caught you off guard in terms of uh, running the business, staffing, sourcing, your clientele? I imagine there are many changes from a New York environment from a cost perspective, but beyond just rent, which we know is extreme in New York and not as extreme in some other markets, uh, what, what surprised you or caught you off guard about coming back uh, to Minnesota and opening up uh, businesses there? Well, from a positive, what caught me off guard was that we had about 96 people apply for the kitchen. We needed 16 cooks and we had 96 qualified applications. So that was shocking. I did not expect to get that many people to apply. Uh, I I hired 16 and I wish I would have hired all 96 because we could use them now. Um, But the other thing that was shocking sort of on a negative was, you know, the minimal amount of of large purveyors that that we were used to seeing in New York. I mean, if you ran out of cauliflower, it's like you call the guy and he's got you cauliflower in 15 minutes. In Minnesota, it's not really the same way, which has forced us to seek only using our local farmers on a very um, day-to-day basis. So now we have 92 different farmers that we work with between both restaurants, uh, and we've kind of taken the bigger purveyor out because we find them to be less reliable. So it's been a learning curve on that side of things for sure, uh, both from a positive and negative standpoint. Uh, question for you, Chef Katie. Uh, in terms of your restaurants, I want to ask you first about the the environmental impact. What do you do at your restaurants to to tackle this from a, a composting, recycling, and reducing food waste uh, standpoint? And then also, why do you think that environmental responsibility has lagged behind uh, sourcing responsibility as a, as a topic of discussion within restaurants? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of uh, started when we opened um, very simply with a great compost program and recycling program and recycling, you know, of our fryer oil. Um, but then over time, you know, that led to deeper conversations where we were asking ourselves, well, if we're composting it, you know, then that's kind of money going in the trash, right? I mean, even though it's not going in the landfill, which is great, it goes to a local guy who creates wonderful, nutritious soil out of it. But, um, you know, we figured that if we started thinking about the things that we are, the items and the products that we're using in our restaurant in a different way, it pushed our creativity. And all of a sudden, I mean, I put in these huge, when we started, I put in these huge bins in our walk-in cooler. And I told everybody, put all your vegetable scraps, like ends of everything in these giant bins. And in like two days, I had 
gallons, you know, collected. And I was like, oh my God, this is crazy amounts of food. So we roasted it all really hard and turned it into this amazing, amazing vegetable stock and decided to put paella for the first time on our menu. And it's basically, you know, I mean, the rice and then this stock made out of everything that would end up in the trash. And I love it because the staff then, every time they're slicing a clove of garlic, they know that they're going to put, you know, that end into the refrigerator um, versus in the garbage. And they think about all of the products just a little bit differently. And, and, and so why do you think that this discussion is something that's just starting now in kitchens? It's, it's been something that uh, chefs have, have always walked around and looked in, in bowls and garbage cans and said, that's wasteful, right? Like, let me show you why uh, we need to cut something this way or why you shouldn't put something in the dish pit until you've used a spatula on it. What's catching up now that this is sort of industry-wide? Well, I just think that we are realizing um, how important the job is of the people who are growing the things that we're using and um, that we want to treat that with more respect. We also are noticing getting facts like the fact that um, 40% of food that's produced in the United States is wasted. And, I mean, when you hear a number like that, it's like, oh, my God, talk about potential. That's 40% of all of the money, you know, that could be going um, to supporting a great food system straight in the garbage. So I think that just it made me think, well, what am I doing? And, and it is true that there's lots of times when you come from – different restaurant environments where the focus is more on beautiful cuts than it is on saving everything. Um, and I think that's changing. I think people are starting to think a little bit more about using the plant top to bottom. I want to ask you about what it means to be living wage certified. Uh, for those that are listening that, that aren't familiar with, with what that is at all, can you just tell us what does that mean? And then how did you achieve this at your restaurant? Is there a, a specific organization that certifies you or was it just an internal decision that, that you sort of created yourself? They're in Asheville. You know, we're fortunate. There's a group called Just Economics and they um, created this living wage certification program in our community. And what they do is they calculate out you know, what the cost of living is based on rent and food and childcare and a variety of different things. And then they, you know, whittle that down into an hourly rate and an hourly pay. Um, so instead of going off of the minimum wage, you're now, you know, agreeing to pay all of your workers at least a, a living wage at a bare minimum. And that's just a commitment that we made about a year after we opened, um, and we've been holding strong to it. And it's great because I think it um, and I and I still think I still think we could even do better. You know, something we've been focusing on now, which isn't a requirement of some of the living wage certification is how can we improve our benefits? You know, we recently came up with kind of a um, with a groundbreaking health insurance plan option that we'd never thought of before that combines a, an inexpensive health insurance plan with a local clinic that we pay for 100% so that they can get kind of sick care in addition to um, an affordable health insurance plan. And so just, I don't know, everything that I do now is thinking about how I can create an environment and a restaurant that supports the people who work there and because I want them to work there longer. I want them to feel like they have a life and they can have a family and they can, you know, 
live a great life and um, feel comfortable, you know, in their financial situation. I want to talk about that more and and address staffing and sort of all of your hopes and responsibilities as as leaders and of your team um, and how we treat our employees. But before we get back to that question, I, I want to reintroduce uh, Julia and ask you about uh, your new project, Kumiko, which is going to have uh, elements of an omakase-style experience with cocktails. And it'll also have uh, non-alcoholic drinks will will factor importantly into that. Can you talk a little bit about the new project that you're working on? Uh Explain the omakase concept for, for those that, that aren't super familiar with it and how you'll translate that from its sort of original uh, usage as a food delivery mechanism to cocktails. Sure. So I, I grew up in Japan, and for me, growing up, omakase wasn't necessarily a tasting menu, which is how I feel it's kind of happened in America, where omakaseru makaseru is to to give in completely, to allow someone else to decide for you what you're going to be eating, essentially. But it's also, it's based off of a conversation. It's not a one-sided thing where the chef just puts out whatever they think is best. Rather, they ask you what you like, what you don't like. In the case of sushi, for example, they'll tell you what's the freshest and what's the best, but then they'll have that conversation. You know, if you don't like the particular fishy fish, you know, maybe they'll avoid the mackerel for you and go a little on the lighter side of the spectrum. And so when it comes to cocktails as well, the equivalent almost to omakase is dealer's choice. And as a bartender, I've made a lot of dealer's choice cocktails. And it is based off of, yes, entirely what I love to work with as ingredients, but entirely based off of what the guest is hoping to drink, whether they like something stirred or shaken, something bitter, something a little bit on the softer side of the spectrum, low proof. Um, so as far as it goes for Kumiko, what we hope to do is we, we will have an eight-seat bar and from open until about 9 p.m., have a little bit of a, a slower, quieter, more intimate style of service at the bar, where if you come in with two people partway through, they, what they're getting next to you might veer off from what you're getting based off of personal preferences. So working very closely with the guest as well as very closely with the kitchen to maintain pairings throughout the entire meal. So that will be our form of omakase at Kumiko. Gavin, you touched on, on having a ton of staff that you wish you could hire all of them. It's, uh, you know, you're building a team and you're, you're the leader. Katie, you touched on a, a bunch of different ways that you're hoping to provide a, a safe and, and solid working environment. And Julia, you've trained many people across many of your jobs. All of you are, are leaders at your own projects. Uh, it's been a difficult year in, in across all industries, but also the restaurant industry from a leadership standpoint and uh, protecting employees and giving them uh, a safe space. Uh, what what are some strategies that you all use in your own uh businesses and as leaders that uh, are responsible for your employees to provide that safe, collaborative uh, work environment for them. Do you want to start off with that? Sure. I mean, you know, I think for me, at least, I don't think that after this year, I all of a sudden thought to myself, how do I create a safe environment? I think I've been, I think I've been thinking about that for a long time. Generationally, the, the, the industry is changing and our generation is kind of growing up into this into this world now, but we're growing up in a way that's that's more thoughtful uh, because we didn't want to we don't want to work eighty hours anymore a week or ninety hours a week, and we don't want our team to work ninety hours a week because we remember what it was like when we were doing that. 
you know, it's like I, I, I posted something on my Instagram, but it was like my six-year-old took a Polaroid picture of himself and put it in my suitcase. So when I unpacked here, he, he, and then he said, now you won't forgive me. Forget about me, Daddy. You know, it's like that to me is so, it's, it's a very important part of my life. And I, and I think that the way that I think about our teams is the same way that I think about my family. So if somebody on our team says, hey, I, I really need some personal time and I need three days off, that should be okay. Everybody should feel okay to ask for that and, that, and, and we'll make it work. You know, you would always make it work. I mean, if they quit, you'd make it work. So why can't you make three days work? So I, I think for, for us, at least our, our responsibility more than anything else is to make people feel as though that they can come to any of us and talk to us about these things. More importantly, um, they can talk to each other. We, we closed the restaurants for 10 days in January and we had this huge uh, all staff training and it wasn't about like what are the new wines by the glass and what's the new food but we brought in different speakers from around the country that talked about addiction and all sorts of isms and talked about uh, how failure created success for them and we brought in these really motivational speakers to our team because we wanted to teach and show our team that it wasn't about you just knowing the food on the plate or the glasses of wine or the cocktails but actually enjoying where you are and so what you said, Katie, like having them work for you for a long time. I mean, that's a really important thing because I don't, I don't want my team to work for me because I don't want to find somebody else. I want my team to work for me because I love working with them. I love being with them. That's why we hired them because they're really good at what they do and they're really fun to be around. Does, do either of you want to touch yeah, on this? Sure. So, um, you know, first of all, I think that we have tried or continue to strive to, to, to make sure that my team knows that we want open communication. Like if there's ever a moment where they feel uncomfortable or um, a lack of respect or professionalism going on in our restaurants, I give them a variety of avenues, you know, to come forward and talk about that because you can't, you can't stop it unless you know about it, right? And then um, the other on that same note, for the first time this year, we started offering an EAP program, which is an employee assistance program where, you know, they get basically free counseling if they have, you know, issues, whether it's financial stresses or um, alcohol or other substance abuse issues or family issues that are going on. Or, you know, even if a family member who lives with them has an issue and they get to use this service for free to get it's, you know, kind of short term help, you know, five sessions and they get to address that and then they get help to find more long-term help. And the idea is that, you know, a lot of these people that we employ are in their 20s, you know, and I know what I was like in my 20s. I was a mess. I had no idea what I wanted to do, you know? I was just floating around and bouncing off all over and, like, trying to figure life out, and it's a hard time, and we need to try to, you know, help them through that, you know, period. Julia, do you want to touch on that at all in terms of anything that that you're doing at Oriole or with the Oriole guys? Yeah, at Oriole and I think at any restaurant really, there's so much to know. And so when you think about having and maintaining that work-life balance, I've worked in places where you're expected to know everything about everything and you're expected to come in and work those 15, you know, 16-hour shifts. And so that there's that moment of, well, when do I study? When do I actually get to learn all of this information that I'm supposed to know and share with the guest? You know, how, how do I avoid getting, getting yelled at? You know, that was a reality for quite some time. And so at Oriole, something that Noah and Kara do that I absolutely love is partially they're open uh, just five days a week. And so there are two days in a row that everyone's off. Everyone works full time and they're able to because they get those two days. Uh, so everyone kind of learns at the same pace and works together. And then uh, there are regular training sessions 
just an hour or two before a shift once or twice a week. And those training sessions are so helpful for everyone when it comes to not feeling the need to be at home studying alone constantly. That's amazing if people can do that, but not everyone is able to. A lot of people have families. They have people that they need to take care of that they're that are looking up to them and that, you know, need their time and they need them to be off work for just a moment. And so providing times at work that aren't on, that aren't guest facing to allow people to study and learn, I think is really important. Uh, because we have both chefs and uh, cocktail creators sitting up here right now, I want to talk about uh, building flavors of a dish and of a cocktail, but also how those can work harmoniously uh, for your customers, for your diners. Uh, I believe that sometimes you can have an experience where there's a disconnect between those two things. Now more and more restaurants are paying attention to that. If you can talk about that specifically from from your side of whichever you're on and how you work together uh, collaboratively to make the whole experience cohesive at, at your businesses. Do you want to start off by talking a little bit about cocktails, how you maybe build a cocktail flavor-wise, and we can come down this way, how that impacts menus? Sure. Uh, a cocktail is all about balance. There's that balance of a shaken drink, which is spirit, uh, sour, and sugar, essentially. And then ice, that's usually breaks down into water as it's shaken. And then there's the stirred beverage, and truly the definition of cocktail, which is spirit, bitter, sugar, and water. Water being ice also in this case. But it's really interesting to look at these templates almost and look at classic cocktails. The Negroni, for example, is where you have spirit, a bitter, and then also a fortified element, like a soft vermouth, and how all of these play together as they come together. So when talking to a guest and figuring out what it is that they'd like to drink, oftentimes uh, I'll equate what they're saying to a classic cocktail. Like, would you like something that's a little bit dark and bitter like a Negroni? Or would you like something that's, you know, bright and almost effervescent like a French 75 and then breaking it down from there? When it comes to the spirit-free, uh, which is a term that I like to use for non-alcoholic uh, beverages at Oriole uh, and spirit-free pairings, it really comes into play in a fun way, like truly playing with flavor because we don't have the backbone of alcohol anymore. You don't have that that little that bite that you get from something that's been distilled and in the case of spirit freeze and developing flavor, uh, start to rely a lot on earthiness and almost savory elements, peppercorns taking the place of the bite and the spice of alcohol in some cases. So it's been a really fun kind of journey at Oriole with the pairings, working out how to apply the more savory flavors into the drinks. Katie? I love that you have a focus on spirit free. I'm a four months pregnant right now and like it's it's a desert out there for finding interesting things to drink you're drinking a lot of lemonade yes exactly (laughs) water you know over and over again um but as for food you know i mean i um what i think is important when we're we're creating a dish for either a restaurant we're focusing on the concept of the restaurant i mean to me the more defined that is and the more I put a box around what I'm creating, I find it more helpful. And I think it creates a cohesive like restaurant experience when you come in. You know, when you come into Curate, it's a Spanish tapas bar. Everything that gets served 
feels like you're in Spain or was inspired by Spain very strongly. And at Night Bell, you know, it's more a focus on Appalachian inspired and local ingredients and reducing food waste as well. And, you know, you see that in every dish that we create. And then it's about balancing flavors. I mean, it's very similar, um, you know, idea behind... um, the cocktails, I mean, we're thinking about using acidity and textures and, um, you know, um, smokiness or sweetness and, and balancing um, a combination of all of those to create a really delicious final product. Yeah, I mean, all that's right. <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know, I think for us, too, so we have a director of beverage who, who we work with a lot to make cocktails. And the good thing is, is he, he was a cook. So he thinks like that, you know, and, and when we're tasting, whether we're tasting dishes or we're tasting cocktails, uh, we all taste it together and we put ourselves in that box, sort of like what Katie was suggesting. And we give ourselves a criteria that we go through and we say, OK, if it hits these five points, then it goes on the menu. If it misses one, it's off the it's off the menu and we go back to the drawing board. I mean, I think a lot of it, too, is um, a lot of it's self-editing. I think we could all say that we've gone out to eat at restaurants where you taste something and the food is good, but in your mind you think to yourself that chef just needs somebody to like edit the dish because there's seven things too much on the dish itself, and its simplicity sometimes can be said for a lot. Speaking of, uh, you know, getting advice, getting advice from someone and and having that person who can help you make those editing decisions. Uh, you have been a teacher and a coach, and you are now in a leadership position, but at one point in your career, uh, you were just coming up. I'm curious about someone who's had a, a major impact on you, uh, something that stuck with you from when you were uh, just, just getting started, and, uh, and what type of messages that they delivered to you have you carried on as you've grown? Yeah, you know, I mean, Danielle Balud probably put the most amount of effect in my thinking and critical thought process. You know, I started working for him when I was 27 years old. And I remember the first menu that I made with him. We were sitting up in the skybox at Danielle. And I brought my notebook and I brought all my everything that I had researched. And you make four sort of sections of the menu. And one of them is classical French. And so I was sort of leaning on him (laughs) to kind of tell me what he thought. And he brought out his book that he had kept as an apprentice since he was 14 years old and opened up this recipe book and the papers were sort of falling all over the place. And that's kind of what I went back to over and over again. And so I, you know, what he always sort of taught me was uh, the traditional side of things and kind of staying with, with those classics. And you can interpret them and you can, you can change them and you can do whatever you want with them. But if it's a salmon dish with sorrel, know what it's like when Twagro made that salmon dish with sorrel. Like understand what that flavor really means and then work off of that. And I think a lot of that is just through educating your palate and your mind. Katie, curious about someone who may have, you know, really impacted you and your decisions that you, that you're making in Asheville. Sure. Um, I would say, you know, it was, uh, Jose Andres. I mean, I, uh, he was the first person that I worked for and, you know, I mean, I learned so much from him, not only how to run a restaurant, you know, how to run a business and a company, but also to be just a very generous and charitable human being. I mean, he's he's everywhere, all over. I mean, trying to single-handedly save Puerto Rico. And, you know, he just um, blows my mind. And I wish that I could live up to half of what he has done. I think 
Jose and Danielle can teleport because they seem to be in about a hundred places at all times. I'm and not really sure how they have these. I don't know they how they never figure that out. Tired. It's like, yeah, I'm tired watching them do what they do. And yeah, he has not shared the secret of teleportation with me. I'm I'm a little upset about that, but. Uh, the the other thing that I wanted to ask you about, Katie, is is partnership. Um, you uh, opened up a hospitality group, and you have two restaurants. Uh, your husband is your partner? Yes. And uh, my brother is my partner. So from a personal standpoint, uh, I spend every day with, with a family member. Uh, there are pros and cons to that. I'm curious to what your take is on having someone that you... Uh, know so well be your business partner and also sort of working around the clock and if there is a way to achieve that work-life balance like do you turn it off at home or how, how do you kind of navigate those waters sure and I'll actually take it up one notch not only my husband but both of my parents are my business partners oh you really double double down there <laughs> yeah so <laughs> it's 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 the four of us you know who who um, own the the concepts and you know it's um it is. It's, it's both. One thing is true. It's super rewarding um, because you are in a group of people that you trust, you know, very deeply. You know, they're never, or at least you hope they're not going to like, you know, screw you over somehow. <laughs> so that's really great. And you fully trust them. Plus, I've really gotten to know not only my husband, but my parents is like real strengths and weaknesses, which is something that I never thought particularly with my parents, I never thought that I would really learn. Um, at the same time, it's extremely challenging. I mean, because we spend so much time working together, it is hard to turn it off when I go home with my husband. And um, we just have to try to put in rules in place. Like, you know, I'll be like, nope, we're not talking about work anymore, you know, and let's just be with our daughter and focus. Um, and with my parents, you know, around holidays and things, after you've seen them every single day and then you get together for Thanksgiving, you know, you're like, what more are we going to talk about? <laughs> you know, but we usually tend to try to broaden our group and invite some friends and make it more of a party situation with, uh, but it's a really wonderful experience in the end. It is, it is challenging. <laughs> Julia, same question for you. As as you are now partnering with Noah and Kara, uh, w what is the leadership composite like? How, who delegates responsibilities, and uh, and how is it opening up the the new project, working in that way? I first when I first met Noah and Kara was when uh, they were at Senza, and initially I fell in love with Kara, her demeanor. Uh, on the floor and the way that she ran the entire front of house and then tasting the food I immediately was inspired by by Noah and then getting to know them as people and how strong of a husband and wife team that they are I was very very inspired by them just outside of the workplace as well so the opportunity to open a bar with them is it really is a dream come true and I'm lucky because my husband will be working there as well so we really, really are almost creating like this little, this little family that's growing. Um, and as far as it goes for, for delegation of tasks and responsibilities, I think it works out really beautifully in the sense that we all trust each other completely with the areas of expertise. So I will cover the bar side of things and a lot of the conceptual ideas and the, des the design. And Kara and I work together on the design and the front of house, and then Noah is going to be heading up the food side of things and the back of house. So... When it comes to that, I think we all balance each other out in a really lovely way. 
Gavin, I want to ask about the, the Synergy series that's happening. Uh, tell everyone that's listening sort of how that idea came to be, who's participating, and uh, how long will it go on for? Sure. So Synergy series started out, uh, this will be our third year, and the reason we created it was because we get asked probably a bazillion times to give away a dinner for charity uh, or to do something. And I had this moment when I was doing a dinner at our restaurant for a charity and it was for 10 people and I had no recollection of like who it was for and like why we gave it away and you know there was just no connection to it it really bothered me so we decided to create the synergy series which selfishly allows me to invite chefs to Minneapolis and have somebody pay for it and have us go around and eat really great food and have a lot of fun but more than that we get to have them come in and cook a dinner with us at Spoon and Stable it's for 80 people each night we we originally started to do it as just for one night in our first year, that was our goal. Michael White was our first chef, and we sold all of his tickets in less than a minute. So I called him up, and I said, I need, I need a second night, which he gave us generously. And so now we do two nights with each chef. So this year, we have Jeremy Fox. We have Tracy Desjardins. We have Ludo. We have Daniela from Cosme um, in New York City. I'm not sure if we'll do it more. This is our third year. I kind of feel like when you do something like that, if it gets too repetitive and gets too expected then maybe you hit the right chord and you can pull it away for a year and have people want it again. This year we did something we've never done, which is we sold the entire season so you could buy all four dinners in one shot for about $1,800 a person. And we sold 172 tickets out of 180, which was pretty amazing in like five hours. So we're ready to go now. The first one is in, is in April 5th and 6th with Jeremy Fox, and we're so thrilled to have him. We, I think we have two tables left to sell. Cool. Katie, you're, you're based in Asheville, and uh, I, I'm curious, when you, when you moved there, was it, um, was it a culinary destination? Do you believe it's turning into a culinary destination? How have you seen it change over the years that you've been in Asheville? And what would you say to someone who's, who's never been there um, about the, the city and the type of food that, that you're doing there? Absolutely. So, you know, when I first moved to Asheville, um, I mean, a big part of why we moved there was because I came in and I saw some um, some great restaurants and I also saw a really thriving farming community. The farmers markets were packed every weekend with locals buying their produce. And I was like, man, this is amazing. You know, um, there's definitely potential here and the local community really supports um, all of the local businesses. And you could see that by going and seeing the existing businesses in downtown Asheville um, and the fact that they were full and just thriving. And so we decided to open, move there and open our first restaurant. It's also a beautiful place to live. There's mountains and rivers and it's just this really magical, um, magical place. Um, but over the years, I mean, it's really in the past seven years, you know, since we've since Curate has been open, it has really exploded. I mean, now there are restaurants popping up like all over every year and hotels. And, you know, it's um, it's it's a fun and exciting, certainly crazy moment to be there. Um, but it seems like it's growing in all the right ways. You know, um, I, I still see more independent, unique concepts popping up versus, you know, um, larger chains coming in and taking over. So that's, that's really as far as restaurants are concerned, which is really exciting. Julia, you're, you're based in Chicago. It's a tremendous food city and, uh, 
and obviously amazing cocktail bars. Uh, what's something that you're excited about or looking forward to beyond your own project uh, in the next couple years in Chicago as it continues to elevate itself as a, as a culinary uh, destination? I think we're at a really interesting point in time in Chicago where a lot of food writers and, and chefs and people are saying that the bubble is bursting. You know, more and more places are, are closing. And at the same time, there are people who are saying that there, there aren't enough good people out there, that we aren't getting the 92 applicants, you know, that it's, that it's harder and harder to, to find the staff to execute the vision of these incredible chefs that are, that are coming in the city and really coming to their own. So I think as the bubble is slowly bursting and places are starting to close, so then also are there more and more people who are, you know, ready to jump behind the bar, jump into the kitchen, you know, hop onto the floor and really start to execute some really incredible services. So I'm looking forward to seeing the new partnerships that form kind of as a result of this, that perhaps it, it really will be more quality over quantity. I want to thank all of you uh, for joining me on this uh, special Williams-Sonoma Chefs Collective panel for Heritage Radio Network. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Charleston. Thank Thank you. Thank you. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Springer Mountain Farms, Big Green Egg, Wisconsin Cheese, and the Julia Child Foundation for making Heritage Radio Network on tour at Charleston Wine and Food Festival possible. I'm Eli Sussman for Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit based in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to over 10,000 episodes of Food Radio Podcasts and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. And stay tuned. We'll have plenty of more shows for you over the next couple days coming from you for coming live from Charleston, food and wine. <laughs>